Joining me today is a true stalwart of English cricket. In a career that spanned the best part of 20 years, he amassed 25,000 runs, including eight test match centuries for England, three of which came against Australia in the Ashes. He also remains the only black cricketer to have captained the England Test 11. At county level, he was a one-club man. Born and raised in Croydon, he represented his beloved Surrey on more than 500 occasions and helped them win eight trophies in a storied era for the club. After hanging up his boots, probably more today's shoes, in 2009, he's since become a celebrated member of Sky Cricket's broadcast team, superbly anchoring the recent documentary series looking at the history of black cricketers in England. Away from cricket, he's also a successful musician who released his second album in 2019. Welcome to the podcast, Mark Butcher. Thank you very much. I can't believe I've played that many games. I feel tired just listening to that. Is it a case of the older you get, the better you were? I mean, it's all, in all our careers, that's sort of how we, how we look back in reminiscence, isn't it? It is a bit. I mean, it, it, gives, you the, it gives you the opportunity to do some um, judicious editing uh, <laughs> in, terms of, um, in terms of, you know, whitewashing out the, the bad bits. Um, I mean, it's, one of the, it's an interesting point because obviously working in the, working in the game still and, and talking about, modern players and the game as it, as it has evolved since I retired. Um, I'm always very, very conscious not to sort of go down the road of things were better in our day. Um, you know, every once in a while, there's, there, there are things that sort of come up and you think, well, nothing has changed that much, that, that things need to be as wildly different as this, particularly when it's not working. But, but by and large, I think that the modern players, a little bit like modern athletes, I suppose, they're kind of, you know, they, they're fitter, faster, stronger. And uh, they have a, a slightly different way of doing things, I guess. I always used to smile because people said to me, you know, well, you know, you could sort of make a comeback. You could, you know, it's only a few years since you competed. And I, I occasionally even got tempted into that sort of ridiculous thought. And then I'd sit down, open a training diary on any day in any year in, you know, when we were all doing what we were doing and suddenly realised, no, there's no way I want to go back to that. I mean, it's it's something that sort of passes. And I guess I mean, you probably tell me the same, but in all careers, there's just that moment when you know that there are other things that sort of beckon you away from the game. Yeah. I mean, in, in my in my case, um, the end was, I woke up one morning and I turned to my partner at the time, now my wife, and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell him I'm quitting today. Um, and she kind of looked at me, you know, we hadn't really had the conversation, um, but I'd been through um, a year, a year and a half of sort of knee surgeries and, and rehab and all the rest of it. And I was 36, was still more than Kate was probably playing as well as I'd ever played batting wise. But um, but I kind of it got to the point where I just didn't didn't want to be getting to the Oval at sort of half past seven in the morning, sitting sitting for 45 minutes on a row machine, doing my weights, trying to rehab this knee and get myself back into a, into a position where I could not just bat, but actually play a full part. As I just made a, a sort of a snap call, really. Um, never looked back on that. And I never had, I never, ever felt like I wanted to go back and play again. Once once it was done, it was done. And people always look at you like you're mad when you say, oh, do you... you you must still go out and have a knock every once in a while at the weekend or whatever, or go and play for a charity game. And I said, no, absolutely not. I couldn't think of anything worse. And they kind of look at you like, why didn't you, didn't you like playing cricket? No, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. That's why I don't want to play it when I'm terrible at it. Or well, it, it's funny that, isn't it? <laughs> See, I don't mind turning out because I was a crap cricketer. I don't actually mind turning out in the occasional 
you know, charity game, you know, at village level. But it would be the equivalent of somebody saying to me, well, do you fancy, you know, <laughs> trying to see how fast you are at 800 metres? I mean, you know, I'd need an hourglass now, not a stopwatch. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, and and it, it was what it was for the time that you did it. You threw yourself into it 100%, gave it everything you had, for better or worse. Uh, and, and, then, and then for me, once it was, once it was over, it was time to, time to learn how to do something else. And it kind of, I mean, I don't know about you in, in, in an athlete's career, but I kind of, I hadn't done anything else. I left, I left school sort of a year into my A-levels because I was offered terms to play for Surrey. So I was 17, 17 nearly 18 when I signed my first contract, professional contract. Um, and I'd done, you know, I'd done various things. I'd worked in building societies. I'd been, a, I'd been a, an electrician's mate. I'd kind of, I'd done maintenance for, for flats. I'd done all kinds of these, these various jobs, um, bits of coaching, et cetera, before I became a professional cricketer. But I had no real qualifications or no real um, sort of, no, no real trade outside of being a cricket player. So once that started, from that moment until the, the time I finished, that was it. That was all I did sort of barring a little bit of television work that I'd started to do in the last sort of seven, eight years of, of, of playing. Um, and so when I decided to quit, it was in many ways in my head, I was thinking to myself, okay, if I don't, I could very easily sign another year's contract. The club were going to offer me something um, and I could kind of muddle my way through, get paid for another year, et cetera, or um, pull the rug out from under my feet and, um, and, and make it so that I had no choice but to kind of get out you, into the world and, and earn a living. The, the, this is, you've touched on a, a, a really topical issue at the moment because mental health, uh, you know, permeates everything that we seem to be discussing. And I've just come back from Tokyo from the uh, Summer Olympic Games. Mental health was probably the predominant issue alongside yeah. the, the performances. Do you think there is a responsibility or there should be a greater responsibility for our clubs, our structures, our member federations out there to be doing more to help athletes in that transitional phase. Because, look, we've all been there. You, you, yeah. Your whole day is built around your competition, your training, and, and cricket is probably, in a way, it's, it's more familial, isn't it? Because you're travelling with the same teams, the same groups. They're almost an extended member of the family. And then when it's not yeah. there... There's a massive void, and my sense is we should be doing more. But I'd be interested in your view, and specifically in cricket. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a really it's a really difficult one. The, the Professional Cricketers Association have been very aware and 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 very on top of this for probably the last twenty years. Conversations around making sure that players are, are equipped whilst they're in their playing careers for a transition because that can come at any time you know, with all sports people injury might might cut you off in your prime you never know quite what's going to happen um around the next corner um and so you know then education in terms of other 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 opportunities other other careers etc all of these things to kind of run alongside whilst you're whilst you're still trying to be you know the best cricket player you can be and have the best career you can have in that However, the sort of the mental health conversation is one that's um, that is obviously it, it's become it's it's everywhere now. People are talking about. Um, what, what, I suppose the only way that I can look at this is from the point of view that that when I was playing at sort of like the height of my national career, you, you basically you, you, everything was was either a good day or a bad day. 
And if your life was was in a is, was in a terrible mess, which I had periods of times where my life outside of the game was in a terrible mess and it had a really bad impact on my playing career, um, you just kind of you just swallowed that, you just sucked it up, and you and you and you got on with it, and you were and you probably played very badly because of it, um, and it then cost you caps, it cost you whatever it might have cost you contracts, etc. And then you tried to bounce back from it, and that. It, for people of my generation, I'm guessing similarly to yours, you would put all of those things down to just life, you know, the, the ups and downs of, of, of things that, that happen and occur in, in your everyday life. Um, and, and you're no more special or no more um, inured to any of this stuff because you're an athlete. It's just, it's just part and parcel of, yeah. of being human. And that's and that's really difficult conversation because now that now what's happened is that the line has become almost slightly blurred between things that are genuinely the responsibility of your your sport or your club or whatever it is, and things that are the responsibility of you to yourself and to your family. Um, and it's very difficult to kind of to, to to see where the line is with these types of things. Um, the, the conversation it's, around the ashes at the moment is, yeah. is is one of those things. But but you're right. I mean, it's very much a you know, if you put it into a sort of historical perspective, I remember sort of complaining to one of my coaches at Haringey Athletic Club that, you know, that there was a, I was, you know, feeling under pressure for a competition, a bit stressed. Yeah. And he sort of looked at me and took me aside and he said, no, son, he said, you know, stress, pressure is working, you know, down the road at Dagenham on a, you know, conveyor belt, putting a light bulb into a headlamp holder you know, eight hours a day for 300 quid a week, as it probably was then, and, and trying to keep yeah. the family intact. What you're doing is, is you know, yes, there's pressure, but, you know, put it put it into perspective. I think there's more, there is more of a recognition now, though, certainly yeah. from modern coaches, that there has to be at least an understanding, particularly as youngsters are coming through at formative stages in their careers, yeah. that, that there are pressures. But look, this is interesting. I love these conversations because it's gone off and already it's gone off in a, in, a, in, a, in a different direction. And we've sort of dealt with the latter part of your career. I want to bring you back, if you don't mind me, to the beginning, because I'm always fascinated about the formative years that, you know, the landscape that, you know, creates the, the, the end product. And, look, you know, going through your family history, you've got you've got a father, you've got uncles, you've got siblings that all played professionally your father was was a coach was was cricket inevitable or was it something that you know did you try other sports or did you suddenly you know was there a pressure for you to 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 put the whites on um no 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 pressure cricket cricket felt inevitable to me from i don't know from probably about age seven or eight but only because only because i can't because i wanted to play professional sport and professional cricket so badly that it never occurred to me that that might not happen. I mean, and I look back at that and I think that that was unbelievably naive, but at the same time, <laughs> the stats aren't always that out, great you know, around those not, sorts of propositions. No, no, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you, you kind of, you're, I'm one of the lucky ones, I suppose, that kind of threw all my eggs into that basket and, um, and, and it worked out. I mean, look, I look back at, at sort of been doing quite a bit of looking back at your family history. And as we do, as you t- tend to sort of approach um, the midpoint in, in life or whatever, touch wood, um, it's the midpoint. And so my, you know, my, my, my mother's family, um, my, my grandparents on my mother's side came over in the Windrush in the, in the 50s to make a life here. 
um, and so and they were from Jamaica. And there was a tight, there was a very very small amount of sort of cricket in the in in the family there. But my mum was an athlete. She was a sprinter. She was a gymnast. And so there was there was a real please, there was, please there was, don't tell me we lost you from track and field. <laughs> no, no, you lost her from track and field because she <laughs> met my dad. And when they were you know so and they had me when they were eighteen. Okay. Um, and so, my, so mum, so mum sort of, um, you know, packed, packed in the, the the sprinting. She went to, um, she and she and my dad went to a place called Heath Clark in um, in Thornton Heath in South London. Right. Yeah. And they met there, but so so and my old man had come back. So so the, the family uh, on my dad's side, my, my granddad was a um, was a, an engineer, um, a tool maker, um, but he was offered terms by Leighton Orient. Um, and Crystal Palace was sniffing around him in, okay. in his youth. Um, so he was a he was a terrific sportsman. And then that uh, they had my nan and granddad had had three sons. And it was my nan on on my dad's side who was the cricket nut. She used to she used to coach. She was you know she was completely um, unusual for that for that time. So a woman who was massively interested in cricket. She used to coach boys teams, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And her three sons, Alan, my dad, Martin, and Ian. We're all cricket nuts. Then the family emigrated. Granddad decided that he wanted, they wanted to make a, a life in, in Australia. So they disappeared down to Adelaide for, I think, probably about seven years, wherein my dad represented South Australia um, and kind of come to the notice of the chapels and, and whatever down there. And then for that's some a, reason... That's a good standard too. Yeah, really that's good standard. really serious. And so... And, so, um, and then I think... My nan wanted to come home. I think they kind of, you know, they missed family back here. And so they, they, they reversed the decision. Lock, stock and barrel moved everybody back um, and ended up in Shirley in, in South London. And that's where my, when my dad started playing club cricket in, uh, for, for Addiscombe, I think it was, and, and came to the notices of Surrey. Uh, and then that's kind of, and that's how that happened. And then, and then he and my mum met at Heath Clark, the athlete and the cricketer. They were the kind, you know, the golden child. I mean, the unusual thing about this, of course, is that my mum, you know, being Jamaican, it was, you know, young, young, white, blonde haired boy, um, the, 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 the premium athlete at the school, black girl got together um, and, they, and it caused a bit of a stir, even more so that they ended up having, a, having me aged 18 between them. So, you know, it was, it was very, it was quite turbulent in the beginning, I think, you know. But but quite fun, you know. That you had these melding, the melding of these two um, these two cultures, and it sort of produced us us kids who were kind of who were quite quite resilient and quite um, weren't weren't bothered by too many things as we grew up. The, these are fascinating influences, and I've always you know my view of the human condition is it's made up of geography, landscape, friends, family, education, you know, and, yeah. and you, 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 so. Running through that list, it sort of pretty much ticks everything that you went through, including sort of the turbulence of of that background as well. Because I mean, I'm interested when my father was my coach, yeah. and when we ever sat at home around the breakfast table or whatever it was, and we started talking athletics, I'd got you know three sisters and a brother that used to chime in with the chorus of boring boring and we sort of got off the subject i'm guessing <laughs> cricket was just all around you yeah yeah absolutely around the around the dinner table the, the conversations were around football they were around cricket um they were about music uh it, it, basically anything that the, the boring boring bit would have been anything that hadn't didn't have anything to do with kind of um either the arts or sport i guess 
that was very much, very much what was going on sort of culturally, either from my mum's side of the family, who were, there, there were musicians, gospel music, um, soul, funk music, reggae, um, and then on the, on my dad's side, obviously with the, the influence from granddad with the football and nan with the with the cricket, um, sport was very much, uh, very much to the fore in, in everything that that was was spoken about with them. Let me move for a moment because you talked about the influences of your family from two very different types of background, hmm. um, and I'm just guessing that when you presented and choreographed that wonderful Sky series, um, You Guys Are History, you came to that with insights that were probably more profound. I mean, I, I'll be open with you. I come from a sport where actually, you know, from the age of 11, I was getting on team coaches in South Yorkshire. You know, half the team were completely ethnically balanced. It was, it was you know, you just never even thought about it. I remember yeah. being an athletics event in South Yorkshire and some pond life managed to get in and started making, you know, inappropriate comments and noises. And a half a dozen blokes, including my dad, just picked them up by their collars and threw them out into the street and said, <laughs> this is not a sport that, that welcomes you. I found yeah. that documentary personally, I found that really harrowing because I hadn't probably appreciated coming from the sport that I do where, you know, yeah. we just don't even think about those things that, yeah. you know, those stories were harrowing. And, and also the observations you made about the decline in numbers mm. uh, of black players within the, uh, within the England ranks. Yes. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I came, I came at that from a, from a, from a position whereby I, I tried to, I tried not to bring any of my, of my background into it because yeah. I was trying to get the stories of, of, of those players. Now, again, my background did come into that simply because of the fact that my story was very different from a lot of theirs. Um, number one, my, because my old man was a, was a professional at Surrey, you know, he was trying to, as he was bringing me up, he was trying to make his way into the first team at Surrey County Cricket Club. And in doing so, he had, obviously people knew who he was, but I was around the Oval from the age of two or three years old. People knew who I was from birth. So, so in that regard, I wasn't having to prove um, or, or to kind of, I wasn't having to sort of overcome people's prejudices because they knew me already. You know, it was kind of like, <laughs> I, I wasn't some, some youngster from, from goodness knows where. I was, I was Alan Butcher's son. So yeah. that, made, that made things a very, I came at it from a very different perspective. So he got a job working for a, a, a headmaster called Duncan White, who was, who was a bit of a visionary at the time. He had this little prep school called Cumnor House School in Purley. And he wanted, in order to put the school on the map, he wanted to have the, the best sports teams in the, in, the, in the region. He wanted this little prep school to be able to go out and beat all of the, all of the bigger schools around, whether they be private schools or state schools, because the state school sport then was, was, was very, very good in this area. And so he, he hired my dad to coach football in the summers when, uh, when he wasn't, wasn't playing cricket. And he had Steve Kember of, of Crystal Palace and Chelsea coached the cricket and the and the, the PE while he was still playing for Palace um, in the summers. So we had we had these profession, professional sports um, sportsmen teaching us as as kids from the age of five, six, seven. And it also meant because because of that, it meant that I got to go to a fee paying school when mum and dad had didn't have the money to send me to one. 
but because my dad was there teaching and because the headmaster wanted all of the best sports kids that he could find, I ended up going to that place. So I ended up with a head start, you know, by virtue of lots of different things. And so I, I kind of, I sat there as an observer. Yes, I come to, come to it with, a, with inside knowledge of, of, of what it can be like in dressing rooms and all these other types of things. But I also was very aware that their story was not necessarily mine. And hopefully, you know, but my, I thought my job in that was to let them tell their story and I stayed as, as much out of it as I possibly could, despite the fact that the story is kind of mine as well. But, but look, I'm not going to try and gloss over this. Those stories were harrowing. I mean, yeah. you know, they were, they were tear-inducing. Yes. And I'm hoping what you're going to tell me, however, was that was mm. very much... Uh, uh, in a period, you know, football went through the same challenges, yeah. there were same issues in rugby. I'm hoping you're going to tell me that that has moved on somewhat since then. Um, I, th I think, I think, <laughs> uh, I think that the the organisation or team sports or or the organisations below the professional game um, have have a lot of difficulties with this. Um, there are always individuals and people who, who are kind of, who somehow by virtue of, of history or whatever, managed to keep hold of positions of power that they shouldn't have. Um, and as a consequence of that, they don't, nothing gets changed for the better or the, these stories continue and you've been, and generations of kids go through similar things. Um, but I would say in the whole that the game is unbelievably tolerant. Um, that, and I can say that, hand on heart. I also know that there are players and part of the reason why I did wanting to do this around the, the, the faces that people knew and recognised was because I wanted people to, to watch it and go, oh my God, if that happened to if, yeah. if Philip de Freitas was treated like that, then how, you know have a think about what might have happened to the lads who, who didn't make it, who weren't perhaps, um, you know, as talented or as storied as those players um, and, and, you know, the the crap that must have come in, in their way um, along the, their path to try and make it in, a, in professional sport. And that, and that I think, came out of it pretty, pretty clearly. Um, what, what more do we need to do? Um, I think we need, we need to see, we need to see more black head coaches. I think we need to see more black people on boards. Um, I think the representation um, of, of, take Sid Lawrence, for example. Sid Lawrence told me, and it didn't, we didn't get it into the final cut, but he told me that once he quit playing, his professional life was in um, strength and conditioning, was in nutrition, was in all of the things that cricket has kind of has taken on board as gospel um, in the last 20 to 25, well, no, 20 years, I'll say. And, and he was ahead of the game? He was way ahead of the game. You know, he, he had to quit playing because he, because his horrific knee injury, so he had to quit playing and he, he became sort of, you know... The, weightlifting, bodybuilding, sports nutrition, all of these things became his, his life. He said he wrote, to, he wrote to every single one of the 18 counties um, in the early part of the 2000s um, to offer his services, you know, because not only does he know about strength and conditioning, he also knows about fast bowling. And a lot of the people who, who are strength and conditioning coaches have very little knowledge of, yeah. of the, the mechanics of, of the sport itself. Um, and he got one reply. He got one reply saying, "Thanks, we've 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 got it covered. You know, wish you wish you very all the very best of luck." But the rest didn't even write back to him. 
Um, and so you kind of, you know, and that all of those things sort of scar, scarred him as much and his sort of involvement in cricket going forward as much as the treatment that he had from certain base individuals when he was an 18-year-old trying to make his way in the game. Um, and that, and for me, that's a, that's a huge issue, something that, that um, unless that changes, unless there are more, is a more representation of people who are in positions where they're doing the selecting, where they're doing the, you know, the coaching, um, they're doing um, the, um, you know, the organising of, <laughs> of which there is tons in, in the game of cricket, then it becomes more and more difficult. And, and the, other, the other thing is, of course, that, that there are other things that um, as the further away you get from the, the West Indies um, being the, the, the major force in the game of cricket, the further away you get from the generations that came over from the Caribbean, um, the, the less cricket is in the blood, you know, the, the less the game of cricket is the, is the, is the, the main outlet, the more it becomes other sports. I'm interested, do you think that is in part, you know, sits behind the, 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 the stats? I mean, since, you know, I, I can't remember the, the mm. exact numbers, but, you know, only since the, since the turn of the century, i.e. 2000, we've only actually yeah. had six black players that played for England. Yeah, the numbers yeah. were actually quite buoyant before then. Uh, yeah. and, and, and I guess sort of rolling that on, I, I remember, I was pre pretty sure I was at the Oval when the West Indies played England back in 1984. You know, the, 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 the ground was full of expats. Yeah. Uh, West Indies, West Indies, yes. and, you know, it was absolutely, you know, stuffed to the gunnels. And I, I'm was. not sure I actually witnessed that as much now. You know, it, is there more engagement that we need with the uh, African Caribbean communities? For sure. Yeah. Um, uh, 100 percent. And as I said, you know, the, the further away that you get from from the from the generations that were born in the West Indies, not, not only in terms of the guys who play, but the guys, the guys who watch. The more diluted the love of, of the game of cricket has become. Now, now there's a there's a fault there, in that yes, naturally you would imagine that that, that the further you move from a from a, a set of islands whereby cricket is in the lifeblood, the further you, further away you get from that being the birthplace. Of course, you're not going to have the same love of of the game or the same sort of uh, it's not it's not as in you if you're second third generation away from that. That's fine. But, but what is inexcusable is the fact that nothing was done to try to maintain that, that love, that interest, yeah. that engagement. No, nothing was done. And in fact, in, in, in programs whereby things, things were actually posting great dividends, you had sort of like the Harringay Cricket College, you had the London, London Cricket School where a lot, a lot of the black kids would come from and, and a lot of professional players came from those organisations. Funding was stopped from them in, uh, in the early 2000s. Nothing replaced them whatsoever, and then suddenly there was there was no nowhere to go. There was a complete void um, for for black kids that wanted to wanted to get involved. So well, they go, don't get, they don't go get elsewhere. Me, don't get me started on the strangulation of youth, you know, youth funding yeah. uh, across all sorts of the youth <laughs> services uh, in the UK. That's yeah. you know, it's been an act of criminality. But what 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 I'm interested in is, of course, Surrey has got its ACE programme, hasn't it, that's sort of yeah. trying to ad address that and, I guess, address it successfully. Yeah, I mean, so Ebony Rainford-Brent, who's a, is an absolute yeah. dynamo of a, of a woman, um, you know, former England player, now works, well, she does everything, but she's, you know, to be seen, to be found working for Sky. She went to Surrey with this idea 
of creating a new system, basically. Um, and yeah, it's called the ACE program. It's now a, a registered charity. It's been rolled out in Birmingham. It's now been rolled out in Bristol. Um, and, uh, and they're getting really good results from it already. And the thing that she found almost immediately was it's a myth that there are no black or Caribbean kids who are interested in playing cricket. They're interested. They just haven't got anywhere to do it. <laughs> you know, um, and so, but it's always been the community itself that's, that's had to kind of push this. Um, and, uh, perhaps where Ebony may end up succeeding where others have gone before and have not succeeded is the fact that she's managed to kind of get, um, get recognition almost at a, a governmental level to put some money into this and kind of make, has made things happen. And as she says, it was a brilliant quote she said in the, in the, um, in the documentary, whereby she says, you know, that there's, it's not that I want to tear down sort of like the, the system whereby public schools are kind of providing lots of the players who play for England or, the, or the, the better off schools in the north of England. I know things are slightly different up there. He said, there's nothing wrong with that system. He said, but if you want to engage people from different backgrounds, then you have to create new systems to run alongside them. And so that so her plan is not that um, has not been ultra aggressive. You know, this is this is all needs to be torn down, and we need to do everything a different way. She said, we just need to do we need to have a, a different path for different people, and they and hopefully they'll all end up in the same place. Well, I, I think what she's also done, if I may say, is she's really drawn that solid linkage for politicians as well. And look, you know, I'll go to my grave knowing that the most potent social worker in all our communities is sport. As you and I are talking now, there are yeah. thousands of volunteer coaches the length and breadth of this country working in communities that, you know, where probably those coaches are the only male or female role models in the lives uh, of, the, of those kids that, you know, they may be the only anchor uh, during the course of a week. And I think that's what she's done. And I do genuinely think that, you know, the more we are able to articulate that in a calm, moderate way, the more yeah. politicians will recognise actually it's a, it's a tool of social policy if you get it right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and again, the, the only disappointment for me in that is that once again, it's kind of it's taken it's taken a member of the of, of the black community to kind of to do it themselves. You know, there, there's a there's a mutual benefit here for, for everybody. Um, and yet it, it always seems to be left up to these individuals who have the, the energy and the, and the spark to make it happen. And hopefully some lessons might be, might, might be learned from, uh, from what she's done and, uh, and what, the, what the potential results of that might be. Let me move on a little bit, not, I mean, dramatically in a different direction, but, you know, to, I'd like to actually talk about the state of the game because yeah. this is the point in, in my podcast where I have a little bit of my own um, you know, self-indulgence because I love to ask my guests their career highlights. And, and it's interesting because not all those career highlights end up in silverware. You know, they're not the <laughs> obvious things that you are expecting somebody to tell you. Um, so I'm going to pin you on that one. I mean, you've got a lot to choose from, by the way. I've been through the stats. But what was your career highlight? Um, well, I mean, there, there, is a, there is a very, very obvious one. Um, a, a day that will kind of that, that change my life, really. It's the second hundred I made against Australia. Um, in a in a run chase at Headingley, the 173. Um, I'd gone from being sort of dropped from the England team and and being, blimey, but not playing for Surrey in the first team, being dropped from that as well to um, to playing an innings that um, that 
that gave me an England career, that gave me my cricket career back and gave me my love of the game back again. So it was a pretty, pretty monumental um, day stroke innings. Um, and, and it was also the other side of it. And it, it's a, it's a well-told story. So I'll kind of skirt around it a little bit is that it's the only time that I'd actually done any work with my, with my dad on my game um, was in the lead up to that summer. And it, and it happened because I had I'd become so sort of disillusioned with myself and with the game of cricket um, that I wanted to quit. And so I picked, for the first time ever, I picked up the phone to my dad and said, look, help, <laughs> help me. Um, uh, treat me as though I've never played the game before and, 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 and try and rebuild, try and rebuild this, you know. Um, and so we had, we had two and a half, three months where we, we worked exclusively together for hours and hours um and you know and the end result was was that that day in august at, at headingley which is it's a really it's a lovely little story um and and it's true <laughs> so it's quite good. It, it always, it, that always has the advantage that always has the advantage truth but actually i'm i'm interested because you know the 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 influence of of parents in coaching roles is you know you it's sort of very polarized you either hear some really awful stories that end in tears or you hear, you know, the, the, just the solid contribution, help uh, uh, and support. And did, did, I'm interested. I mean, most parents listening to this will sort of have a complete fear of even daring to teach their kids to drive. So the, the thought of your father yeah. spending two or three months with you in the nets just, you know, refining and improving is is a wonderful story yeah well i mean and and, and it, the reason that it happened that way is because because my dad had been he he'd finished his career he was coaching um he was coaching with essex and he was coaching at surrey and i was kind of you know i was playing playing for england i was supposedly at the top of my top of my career and he had he just not he left me alone he figured in the same way that a lot of other parents might. Um, I, I'm not, I don't want to get involved here. There are certain things that I would like to do, but father-son type thing. We'd never had this relationship really in, in, in my entire time growing up, whereby we'd kind of, where there'd been a lot of help with my cricket from my dad. He'd been playing the whole time and, and it was just, you know, there was a divorce and we didn't spend a massive amount of time together in my team. So, so basically he, when I picked up, I was at my lowest ebb um, for all kinds of reasons. It's not, not, it wasn't just sport. My marriage had broken down. I, you know, all kinds of disastrous things had sort of been going on in, in my world. Um, and so in it, so I phoned him. And when, it, and when I had, when I picked up the phone and we had the conversation, he said, thank God for that. I said, why? He said, I've been, I've been wanting to do something like this for ages. He said, but I didn't know, I didn't know how to approach you. And I just hoped that you would come to me and, and you know, and so that's how it went. And, the, and the, the side of it was, was because everything was so bad and because I was literally was thinking about quitting was that I said to him, do what you like. You know, a lot of the time when you, particularly with games that involve um, technique or, um, you know, uh, I know everything involves technique to a certain degree, but with something like cricket where it can be quite personal, people do things a certain way. Um, it's very difficult for a player to kind of, to put their trust into somebody to change everything. And I, I said to him, look, I can't stand doing this, not getting any joy out of it. I'm hating it. I'm not making any runs. I said, do what you like. 
So, and he did, he went back to like teaching me how to hold the bat again. It was like, it was literally, you know, kindergarten classes. Okay. This is, this is how we're going to put your hands on the bat. This is how you're going to stand. This is how you're going to, you know, I went back to, to ground zero. Um, and so I don't think in normal circumstances, he would never have done that. Um, and, 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 and the player, i.e. me, would never have allowed it, you know. So it was kind of a unique set of circumstances that allowed this sort of complete overhaul um, of, of, of what I was doing because I had no ego. There was nothing, there was nothing left of me to sort of say, right, uh, well, sorry, well, that's wrong. I've been doing it this way all my life. There was none of that. Look, I, I don't want to read too much into this, but I'm going to. I'm just guessing from the way you've described this, that this went way, way beyond at that moment in both your lives, the imparting of, of, of technical skill. This was a reconnection. This was an emotional reconnection for both of you. Yeah, I think so, for sure. Um, and because we hadn't, we'd never, we'd not spent that sort of time together ever. So it was, yeah, it was, it certainly was. I'm going to move on again. The 100 series. Yes. You know, I, I've, I've written, I've read a lot of what you've said and listened to a number of things that you've talked about, particularly in your sky role. You're, you're on the innovative side uh, of the argument. I've always, you know, you, you understand the importance of test cricket and you certainly understand the tradition, but you've really been pushing for development and engagement. Give me your short audit after the first you know, segues of the 100 series. Is it working? Is it doing what you wanted it to do? Um, I, 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 come at it from a, I come at it from a position whereby the, the innovation in terms of the game being 100 balls and not six ball overs, etc., etc., to me still feels unnecessary. That the game, the game itself is not, wasn't that hard to follow that you needed to create a whole new way of, of doing it in order to entertain people. However... What I have advocated for for, for many, many years um, is the idea that because county cricket is, because there are 18 counties, because there are um, you know, so many games because of that, because of the fact that you can only put one game a night on the television, um, for all of these reasons, distilling it into eight teams and, and over a short period of time where you can put a game on the telly every single night, in the same way that they that they've done in the with the IPL for the last 13 14 years that that was the way to reach more people it would it, it kind of it sounds slightly counterintuitive because you because in in not playing the games in all 18 regions um, you you feel like you're removing the game from some but I, again i always maintain that england and wales not huge territories you're never you're never more than an hour away perhaps from from a from a major city by, by train or whatever it might be and that if you're trying to suck in as many people as you possibly can to watch these games and make them events then you want to be playing them in the biggest arenas that you possibly can and trying to turn um, you know trying to make it so that the, the, the game that's happening in your town and your big stadium tonight is a game not to be missed not one that you just say oh, well there's another one tomorrow and there's another one tomorrow you know um, and in that regard I think it did that it remains to be seen what the, what the audit is in terms of you know that I know there were a lot of lot of tickets would have been given away initially. I think the reaction to the new teams was unbelievably positive. That was one thing I could not believe. I could not have legislated for in my wildest dreams that you would have all of a sudden people giving standing ovations to a team called the Manchester Originals at Old Trafford in a game that was as foregone a conclusion as I've ever seen. 
And when the winning run got hit, the place erupted. And I'm kind of standing there going, what, what, <laughs> what is going on? And so, yeah, there, there were, I've never seen so many women and girls in cricket grounds before. It, it's not, you know, it isn't, it, it's not true that there were none, that, that, that T20 sort of um, frightened um, that demographic away. That's not true. We, we've had women and girls watching games of cricket, yeah. but because of the, um, because of the way that the uh, the two the two teams the two entities were were melded together, i.e. the women and the men's games uh, teams were both the same thing. Um, the amount of I, I've not seen anything like to see women supporting women play sport. I think that's one of the the, the great areas for growth that sport has in this country. Um, I've seen it with with the netball leagues. I've seen it a little bit with the women's super league with the football. Um, and I think that's great. You know, if you want to try and if you're tr- trying to sort of encourage um, future generations and, and you're, tr- you're trying to get people into an active and healthy lifestyle, then the other half of the population are unbelievably important in doing so. Because not least because when, uh, you know, when, <laughs> when they have their own kids, it's going to be them that's doing the, the ferrying around as it was for my mum and my grandma. You know, where, where do you sit on the uh, the perennial discussion i mean it's the same discussion we have in all sports at the moment that's about scheduling and you know the demands that we're putting on our players our competitors and and just the crowded schedule where do you sit on in that spectrum of the argument in cricket yeah it's it's so it's unbelievably tough because because having the hundred and keeping the uh, the t20 blast and keeping the the um the county championship and having to play a 50-over competition all at the same time means that you just, you're just you putting stuff on top of one another. There's not enough time in the schedule to do all of those things. Um, and, you know, you have, you have financial implications as well in terms of trying to, trying to bring as much money into the sport. And because of that, the, uh, the administrators want as much high-profile cricket as they can possibly cram in, all of which plays into, back into the, sort of the, the mental health and the well-being of the players as well down the line. Um, and so the, the problem the cricket has is that it that it's reluctant to, to let anything go. The hundred is now the the, the counties have all sort of ha- held their hands out and have taken the money from from the hundred. They're they're in now, so the hundred is staying, whether they whether they want it or not. And so what are you going to give up in return? Now for me, the, the only way to do it really is you, you have to you have to play less of the T Twenty games, and you have to think about perhaps playing less of the of the four day championship cricket as well none of which is going to go down particularly well but all of which is is unbelievably necessary you know you, you simply uh, none, cannot... of, none of that is going to get you elected to anything either <laughs> no no well i mean you know I'm, I'm i'm definitely not somebody that that is is massively interested in that. i mean no, no. I, I've, I've had people i've had people say to me you know i should i should run for for the boards or, or whatever it might be or or, or sit on these things do you know interest in that at all um, I don't know. You, you never say never. I mean, there, there might come a time when um, when you have to put your money where your mouth is a little bit. Because I'm very aware of the fact that as a as a pundit and a commentator, your kind of your your comments are, are without without consequence sometimes. And so there, there's a there's a um, responsibility in that. How hard do you find it in your commentary role and your punditry role? How do you, how difficult do you find it to be critically analytical? In other words, you know, somebody's having a shocker. Mm. Um, you know, how how hard do you find that if you know them personally? I mean, I think most people that I know that have made that transition from 
performance into the commentary box have said that's actually one of the bigger challenges out there. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a it's kind of tough. I mean, I, I'm now long enough retired that I, 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 yeah, I didn't play with any of the guys playing. Really, there's only a, there's only a couple left. Um, however, I think at the beginning, I think just you just have to be honest, really. And and I think I I will I will go out of my way sometimes to go and talk to a, to a player, whether they you know <laughs> whether they want to hear what I've got to say or not. But I I think it's important that that you wouldn't say anything on the television about about them and the way that they're playing that you wouldn't say to them to their face, or or at least you know at, at least be able to go and say offer them a piece of advice or, you know, or an observation or something that might help. It's up to them whether they take it on board or not. But, but I think that sort of going out there and, and being incredibly critical and perhaps being personal is, is an absolute no-no. But I think you can do that. You can criticise people and you can, and you can say, point out the obvious that they're having an absolute shocker and that perhaps they should be dropped and it would do them some good. Um, and, and you can make that constructive too if you're, if, you're, if you're smart enough about it and if you care enough. I mean, I think that's the key. It's, it's very easy if you, if, you don't, if you don't give a crap to kind of to sit there and, and have a go at people and, um, and, and, be, um, and be outrageous and kind of try to, try to garner clicks for, for being... For being controversial, but I, you know, I really care about the, these guys um, playing because because I know what it was like. It was bloody hard, you know. You know, you know what it's like. It's it's if you want to be the best at what you do, or if you want, even if you're even if you're just out there competing and you're and you're trying to make the best of whatever ability that you've got, it's bloody difficult. Um, and having people sniping from the sidelines without giving you any sort of um, any sort of context or any sort of help as to how things might be a little bit better is, is unbelievably unhelpful and it's not very fair. Did you ever at any stage worry about that, you know, affecting your burgeoning career by being open and, and honest in analysis or did you just have to literally park that and say, look, I, I know what I stand for in the game, I know what I believe in the game and this is how I want to see it played? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've, never, I've never worried about it too much. I mean, you, you know, you do have to you do have to have a, a certain a certain filter in doing anything, particularly anything when there's a live live cameras and microphones around. But at the same time, I, I, like I said, if you can if you can sort of if you if you felt that you'd be able to say what you said to the guy, to the person's face, um, I don't think you have anything to worry about. And 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 again, if it, as long as it comes from because I you know there are people there are people in in the business in the game who who say things and you know you, they don't believe them. You know what I mean? It's kind of. I'm saying this, this is going to this is going to go down well on on social media, or I'm going to get another contract because I've managed to come up with something clever and controversial. But I, I'm not interested in that. It's kind of you, you you either believe it or you don't. And sometimes the, the stuff you believe is bloody harsh, and you you've had a pop at somebody or whatever. But but as long as you can say, well, that came from a place of um, it, it came it came from the right place. You know, you, you, you're saying it with almost with the idea that you're trying to help somebody by being honest. I think. I'm going to finish off with uh, in a slightly different tack because I know because I've heard you play. I've actually been in the old club that you've been played in. I can't imagine <laughs> what I was. I was on, obviously on my way home from somewhere, but I'm a jazz man. But I have heard you play, and you are a very accomplished musician. You've released two two albums. Music has been. A soundtrack throughout your life? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I mean, what could be what could be more important? I think there, there's definitely a, a sort of a, a foppy artist in me for sure, Seb. <laughs> and I know I just love it. I, lo I love I lo being able to paint words, uh, paint pictures with words. 
Um, Your escape? You know, the, the musical side of things. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm always writing. I'm always... I'm, I'm always practicing. I mean, you know, there are there are a gazillion better guitar players than I am, but it's kind of something that I've done done since I was twelve. Yeah, yeah, self-taught. And uh, you know, being able to being able to come out and um, I mean, all the way through lockdown, I kind of was was writing songs. I kind of I've got fifteen, sixteen new songs that myself and, and producer um, Pete Twyman have been bouncing backwards and forwards on the, uh, across the internet. Um, and so we got another album's worth of, of material um, ready to go. Uh, and I've got a couple of gigs coming up as well. We just, just started to put a few uh, dates back in the diary again for November. So rather looking forward to that. And, and one of the things about, um, about the way that this, the, the cricketing schedule has kind of worked out, I've got a, I've got a couple of months where I'm not going to be doing too much, where, which will please people because I was on the telly virtually every day during the last course of the summer. So people would be sick of me. So. <laughs> come and see me in a club instead i've taken up more of your time than i really should have done but i have to tell you it's been a fascinating romp through your career and and things that um well i i really do find fascinating my last quick fire question there's only one and i've been dying to ask this glastonbury or the oval <laughs> uh well it's got to be glastonbury isn't it i've done the oval <laughs> <laughs> Mark, thanks ever so much. Thanks, man. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales, brought to you by CSN. 